This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Today's podcast is brought to you by, well, us, Two Guys in a River. Dave and I have just published a new book on fly fishing called The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists. The best place to find the book is on Amazon.com. Dave, what's the big idea of the book anyway? The big idea is the subtitle, Life is Short, Catch More Fish. The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists is a fun, quick read. It's an entire book of lists, just practical help to help you catch more fish. That's right. In fact, we like to say that the book is uh, like a bag of potato chips. You reach in and grab a handful and then another and then another. I don't think you'll put the book down until you've consumed perhaps 4,000 calories. Dave, it's a lot like you eat potato chips. I felt a little bit of judgment in that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But seriously, order the book from Amazon. It makes a great gift for fly fishers young and old. When I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me swim until an hour after we ate lunch or dinner. Do you know why, Dave? Well, I needed a break from watching you flail in the water. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. But what they told me was that I could get cramps and drown. Dave, do you know how many swimmers have died because of cramps caused by swimming too soon after eating? I do not, but I think you're about to tell me. You bet I am. The number of swimmers who have died because of cramps caused by swimming too soon after eating is zero as in none, as it's all a big lie. No, seriously? Yeah. That was just one of those, uh, I don't know, pieces of folklore that the people believed. and and There are people who die of cramps, right? Uh, probably so. Probably somebody Or drowned did, because but, of cramps. Right, but there's been no research that I've ever seen. In fact, I, I read an article, I, I can't remember the source, but that really debunked that. Huh. Well, today, in the interest of helping you become a better fly fisher, we're going to talk about some of the biggest lies that fly fishers keep circulating. Now, I have to say this. Many, if not all, of these lies are half-truths. That is, they may be true in certain places at certain times of year under certain conditions, but they are really unhelpful. That is, if you uh, take them as, uh, this is the absolute truth with no exception, uh, if you hold on to those, they might keep you from catching trout. So this is how it's going to work. Uh, we're going to identify five categories and each share a lie that we've heard. Uh, we haven't compared notes ahead of time, so it's going to be interesting to hear our differing perspectives or, or maybe some of them will be similar. So five categories. The first one is the biggest fly pattern lie. Uh, Dave, what would you say that is? Biggest fly pattern lie. That the San Juan worm is a fly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. All right, no, that wasn't my... Uh, that wasn't my. No, and you love the San Juan worm, and you've gotten me to love it, too. Right? I tell you it's, what, it's I, I catch a lot of fish on the yep. San Juan. Oh, so, so mine's more of a meta uh, point in this, okay. in this category in terms of the biggest fly pattern lie. I would say that... The lie is that you have to match the hatch perfectly to catch fish. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's so much to learn when you're fly fishing and uh, when you're just starting out. And there's so much to learn the rest of your life in the sport. And I think this idea that you have to match it perfectly 
to catch fish is just a myth. It's just a lie. And yeah. a good example of this is recently, um, I think it was like last June, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a fly fisher who had won, had won a U.S. competition using the, what, they, what was called the mop fly. And it was, it's a fly made out of mop strands. <laughs> and it doesn't look like a fly yeah. at all. It looks like a slug. Yeah. And so there's so much controversy, controversy. So in France, in the fly fishing competition, you can use it. But in the UK, you can't. And of course, in the US, you can use it. So here's somebody who is, is fishing a fly that has, we have no idea what that matches. Yeah. And he's, and he won the fly fishing competition yeah. with it. Yeah. So there's this, it's kind of a persistent myth that you have to have this perfect match of the hatch to catch fish. And I, Obviously, there are days when there's a hatch going on and you're not catching anything, and yep. likely you don't have the wrong, you don't have the right color. Maybe you yeah. don't have the right size. So there are all those issues. So I'm not saying it's a full lie. It is probably a half truth. Right. But I do mm -hmm. think, in my mind, that is the biggest fly pattern lie. I think you're absolutely right. I remember, man, this has been 30 plus years ago. Uh, the first year that I figured out how good the fishing was on the Yellowstone below Tower Fall in Yellowstone National Park and I was fishing in the fall with my uncle Ivan and we were using woolly buggers and we caught a number of fish and on our way out uh, about that place you remember that <laughs> where the where we ran into the buffalo and there, yeah. there's a big pool down there but there were a couple by that big rock yeah there were a couple down trees there and and we saw that this fish kept rising it rolled and it was a big fish and we watched it, and I didn't know what it was feeding on—just something tiny. Now I know. I, I think it was a, I think it was a blue wing olive. It was a pretty tiny, um, you know, BWO. But I looked in my fly box, and the only thing that I could find that was small, I thought, "Wow, it looks like it's a dark pattern." I, I just pulled out a, a size 18 black ant, and I, I dangled that thing over, and boom, that trout uh, took it, and. Uh, Oh, that was funny. My uncle was so excited. He, you know, he was on a mission. You, you, you didn't want to lose any fish, and so he actually jumped in in his, in his pants. He didn't have waders on. He just jumped in. He wanted to make sure we got that trout. But I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah, that fly was not close to, uh, you know, what the blue wing olive looked like. But maybe the fact that it was a terrestrial. You know, they always hit those. But yeah, that that's a great point, Dave. I, I think for me, one of the biggest. Uh, uh, lies that gets uh, passed around is the idea that this is the only pattern that they're hitting on. And Bud Lilly uh, talks about how when he owned the fly shop that, that has his name on it in West Yellowstone that he used to get people that would come in and he'd say, so how was the fishing? Oh, yeah, good. Oh, what do you catch them on? Well, the only thing they were hitting today is this little beauty. And Bud says, you know, at the end of the day, there were about 20 different you know, this is the only thing they're hitting on. So, uh, yeah, it kind of goes along with yours. I mean, fly pattern, matching the hatch, having the right pattern is important, but sometimes it gets overrated. Sometimes it's more the size that matters than anything else. And color, size and color. Yeah, right. right. Adjusting yep. mm -hmm. uh, to that. Well, how about biggest fly casting lie? Why don't you go first on this All one? All right. You know, I had a couple of them. Uh, one is you need to make longer casts. Hmm. And 
I don't know that people always say that, but that's the impression that you get. In fact, when you watch some people fish, but I've, I've been told that I have to you know, really need to make longer casts. Well, what I've discovered over the, over the years, it's kind of surprising is that a lot of times uh, you can catch fish that are five feet in front of you. I'll never forget on the East Gallatin, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's a small, it's East Gallatin River, but it's really a, a large creek. And it was in the fall, there were, uh, there were rainbows that were rising to blue wing olives. And, and it's kind of a tricky uh, river to fish because it's, it's instantly deep. It's like there, there's no, a lot of places there's no bank. It's just, you know, a five foot drop off. But uh, the place I was fishing, I mean, it was up on the bank. I wanted to get down in the water and it was like two feet deep, but that put me about six feet from where the fish were feeding. And I thought, I'm going to try this because I knew I was spooking him by being up on the bank. I was there making six feet cast and they were rising all over the place. Didn't bother them that I was that close. So I think one of the myths is that you, you really have to cast further than you really do. Well, can I just step in yeah. before you say your others? That was mine. And that it is all about distance. Yeah. So I think the lie is that casting is all about distance. Now, partly I learned to fly fish in the West, Montana and then Colorado. So you have those bigger rivers. And so, you know, your casting is probably farther just naturally. But through the years, I've realized it's precision. It's not distance. Yeah. Now, yes, if you're fishing, you know, in Australia or Patagonia, mm -hmm. and yeah, there are, there's, the, there's the occasional time when the person who can cast 90 feet against a bank with trees over, you know, hanging him or her, yeah. then yes. But that is really the exception. So I think that is the fly. And the other thing is there's all these fly casting competitions. You go to a trade show and they've got the, you know, the frauds. And the rods are all, I mean, the rods all talk about distance mm -hmm. when it comes to the rod reviews. I just was watching mm -hmm. some reviews on the Sage 1, which is now discontinued, and then the new Sage and the difference between the two. And the Sage X. Is the Sage the X, yeah, yeah, the Sage X. So the Sage 1 was not as great in shorter distances, but on longer distances, you could really get that thing going. But it was harder kind of in that 15 to 60 foot range. But farther out, yeah. it was a much better rod. But again, I think you're right. Um, that it, the distance really is a myth. Was there another one that and you I, had? And I like the way that you said precision is the key. That, that has to be added to it. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you know, I had another one, and I've never heard anybody say this, but, but this is a lie that's practiced. I mean, this is what's modeled, and that is that you need several false casts before you actually cast your fly on the water. Again, nobody's ever said that, but, boy, a lot of people, a lot of fly yeah. fishers believe that because you see this incessant false casting and I've been guilty of that too, and sometimes I've blamed it on one trying to dry my fly. Uh, well, yeah, but uh, you know, I, a couple casts, and it's as dry as you're going to get it. And yeah, just stop making so many false casts. How about the next category, biggest fly gear lie? What did you have, Dave? This is a branding myth for me, and I think the myth is that more expensive equals better gear. Yeah. And the issue with branding and brands is that brands like Sage, uh, they have a whole line of rods, but this idea that just because you pay more money for something that it's better, eh, 
may or may not be true. Every brand has to tell a story. And certainly about the expensive rods, they're telling a different story. You note the graphics, the video that they use to promote it. It's just very high-end, very uh, movie-ish yeah. almost. And, and so that leaks into your subconscious when you're buying mm -hmm. gear. And it's just simply not true. Yeah. Um, and especially for those of you who are starting out, uh, you just don't need the best gear. Now, obviously, the exception are the professionals, the guides. That's different, right? That's a whole different right. category. You need the best because that's those are your tools almost, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. your, your fly rod and your waders. But for the rest of us, for most of us, mm -hmm. um, I've, I've gone upstream in terms of the fly rods and then also the wading boots that I have. But besides that, I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to gear. And so the yeah. important thing to me is that it is a myth and and you really have to fight it because I think the better thing to do is to find more time on the river and spend more money getting out on the river than it is to have the latest gear. How hmm. about you? You know, mine's similar, maybe dialed in uh, to a, a specific tool that we use, and that's our rod. I think the lie is that you need a top-of-the-line rod if you're going to catch fish. And again, maybe nobody says it in that crass terms but that's the impression you get and and it's not true now I let me come clean I used an Orvis for a number of years and then about 10 years ago I bought a Winston uh, rod that's made in Montana and twin bridges and I thought hey I lived in Montana for 20 years I want to get a made in Montana rod but I, I had picked it up in a fly shop and it I just love the feel and it's kind of an ultralight sort of a feel it's a it's a boron 2x and uh, oh my that thing fishes so beautifully, and I, I love it, and, and I think it makes my casting better. I, I think it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I'm not as tired because the rod works for me. But honestly, Dave, I, I'm confident that I've not caught one more fish than I would have if I would have had a, you know, a Reddington or a, you know, a cheaper bargain brand i mean it's I, I love the feel of it and that's you know and i i think i can justify uh, having a rod like that but i couldn't on the basis of well i i catch more fish because i have a winston and i catch more fish than i would if i had you know a 150 dollar rod that that's simply not true so again i just, just say that to encourage people yeah there, there's reasons to buy a high-end rod the performance is is really nice and, and maybe there's some who are such good fly fishers that that uh you know I, I don't doubt that there's some who would say well i'm pretty sure that i you know i catch maybe five percent more fish with a with a sage x or with a winston boron 3x now uh, than I, I would on a 150 dollar rod but boy you really have to be uh technically good to, to notice that yeah. It reminds me, last fall when we fished the Missouri with Doug, I didn't mm -hmm. have a sink tip on my nine foot six sage, so I handed he handed me his Reddington. He had a nine foot yeah. eight Reddington, mm -hmm. and we were stripping streamers, caught that huge rainbow on it. But I remember him handing me that rod, and I, I thought to myself, "Huh, it's a Reddington." And I tell you what, that thing. I had a terrific day on the river, and I could tell no difference between that and my, my sage. And that's probably has to do with my level of fly fishing. But it, it was a great rod, and I caught a yeah. great big fish that day and, you know, yep. had a terrific day on the water. 
Absolutely. So the next biggest lie is what we're calling the biggest stream or river tactic lie. The biggest stream or river tactic lie. What did you put for that, Steve? You know, I put the the lie is that you can't get too close to the trout you want to catch. Oh, that's good. And I think the fear is, and it's a legitimate fear, that we, we have to be careful not to spook fish. But I'm convinced it's not so much the, the closeness as it is, you know, are we casting a shadow? Uh, there's so many variables. I mean, I, I talked a few moments ago about fishing in the East Gallatin, where I was literally six feet from these rising fish. I also remember fishing Nelson Spring Creek in uh, Paradise Valley, Montana, and it's just a crystal clear spring creek. And I was shocked the day I fished it. My friend told me, he said, you know, they're used to seeing fly fishers and they're not going to spook because they see you. What will spook them is, uh, you know, is a bad cast. And sure enough, I mean, I I felt like, uh, man, I'm, I'm right in their line of sight and, and, you know what, when they when the hatches would start, all of a sudden there's bugs coming off the water, uh, these betas flies, man, they, they would they would hit what I threw. If I made a bad cast, I could see that, you know, the fish would kind of dart away, but it wasn't because it could see me. So, yeah, I, you know, this idea that you can't get too close to the trout you want to catch, no, it's more complex than that. Uh, you, you do want to... Uh, Beware the colors you're using, and, and not to cast shadows, and you know not to make real sudden movements when you're close to the the stream. But uh, that is an overstatement. It is, and I remember our guide Ben last fall saying that to me a couple times. He said, "Get up there, get up there." I said, "I'm gonna, you know, scare the fish." No, you're not. Just get up there because you can't cast from back here. So I went, oh, yeah. All right. Thanks for that. All right. So uh, I think that's great. You know, the one yeah, how I put you? that the best fishing is in the middle of the river. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the best fishing is where I can't get to. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that is such a lie. It's just not yep. true. Uh, if, you know, even on the big rivers, it's along the bank. That's mm-hmm. where you're going to catch fish. Yep. And early on when I fly fish, especially like on the Yellowstone and the Madison, you have this big river and you're thinking, oh, I need to have one of those super casts to get it out, you know, into the run that's out there, maybe 100 feet, 120 feet. That's really where I need to be. Of course, I can't cast that far. But I think it's, you know, especially when you're starting out, you don't know that. You're coming maybe from bait fishing and or you're coming off a boat where you look for pools and and yes, you have to look for runs, but the runs are along the river. They're along the bank of the river. And and uh, I think it's a myth, and I think it's a lie. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there are runs in the middle of the river, so I guess that's a half-truth. Yeah. But yeah. the best are in the on, the on the side of the river. Well, here's a final category, biggest fly presentation lie. You have anything for that, Dave? I struggled with this one. And yeah. I really couldn't think of yeah. it. The only okay. thing I could really think of, everybody would say presentation matters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe the lie is that it doesn't, it, I don't know. I, I'm stuck on this one. I, you know, I, I think it matters a lot, maybe more than what it, than, than, than maybe the lie is that it's not a lie, but it's just not trumped up enough. The presentation is really important. Yeah, it is. So here's, here's what I had, and this is almost maybe the opposite of that. In fact, this is going to sound wrong at first. I, I think the lie in this is that this is just an overgeneralization. Uh, the lie is 
uh, when people say, you can't mend your line too often, you know, keep mending, keep mending. Well, yes, that's right on one hand, but here's the problem with that. I've, I've done this myself and I've seen beginning fly fishers like my sons where I've said, mend the line, mend the line. Well, they will do what I do. They're, they're so obsessed if, if they start to see that middle section of the line, uh-oh, it's getting ahead of my fly. And instinctively you want to mend it. But you know what? What if, you're, what if your fly is in the hot zone? And if you yeah, mend that's it, really you, good. you're going to really disturb good. it. And I know I've missed some fish. In fact, I've been mending my line when I've had uh, trout come up to take my fly. So what I've realized is if, if I, when my fly gets to that hot zone, uh, I, I'm going to let it go, even if my, the middle of my line is ahead, and even if it's going to start dragging soon, I'm convinced that that little bit of, uh, you know, that three-second window before it starts dragging, that may be the best shot I have at catching a fish. So, so why mend it so that after it goes through the hot zone, I can drift it another 10 feet? Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. really good. So that's all I'm saying. I never because, thought of it. I never no, thought because, of that. And, and I realize that I'm always saying, mend your line, mend your line. And I'm always telling myself that. And then I thought, you know, but sometimes I've, I've mended my line right when a fish is trying to take my fly. And yeah, sometimes you can, you can really, if you really get good at this, you can mend it without moving your fly. But I struggle with that if it's a dry fly, especially a little tiny dry fly. Boy, to mend it without, you know, jerking that fly yeah. a little bit in the water. The moment, yeah, the moment yeah. you mend, you're disturbing the whole. Exactly. You know, so it ripples throughout the yeah, line. So do your mending before you hit that hot zone where where you think or or maybe even know the trout are going to hit it, and and even if it's about to about ready to drag, just just let it go because chances are your best shot is going to be a second or two or three seconds before it actually drags. Actually, I just thought of a presentation lie, and this is a tertiary lie. It's not one of the big lies of fly fishing. But I think when you're fishing a high mountain lake, the idea is that generally when a little wind comes up, it ends up being really good for dry fly fishing. And mm-hmm. I found last summer when I was fishing the collegiate, in the collegiate peaks that it was actually when the wind died down that they actually started hitting the fly. It was Interesting. And we were using stimulators, so there's these big bugs sitting on top of the water. But it was after, it, every time the wind would come up, they would stop hitting. Mm-hmm. And every time it quieted down, they would, they, would, they would start hitting. And I've always been taught, or at least maybe wrongly i don't know Mm -hmm. that it's when the wind comes up a little bit that you actually have the tendency to catch more fish but in this instance it's not true so yeah it's it's a minor myth uh not a big lie but it's definitely a presentation so i guess the big takeaway from today is uh you just be very thoughtful you know you you hear a piece of advice It, it probably is true in some situations in some conditions but there are so many variables to fly fishing, so just be aware of that. It, it is, and that's the point, is that somebody will speak really strongly about something. I think as you get more experience in fly fishing, you kind of always have to go, eh, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, obviously there are some principles. Right. But, but in general, sometimes they're just simply not true. Yep. There's that phrase, always confident, sometimes right. <laughs> yeah. So the more confident somebody is, 
the more likely that they're, you know. Sometimes right. Sometimes <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. It's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here's another comment on our podcast about our five most dangerous moments on the river. Bob commented, one safety tip that I too often ignore. Make sure someone knows where you are going and when they should expect you. Last year, a friend of mine went fishing on a small stream in the mountains by himself. It's a very small stream, and during the week, you might go the whole day without seeing another person. Well, he slipped on a rock and broke his leg and had to drag himself up to the bank to the trail. This was on a Friday afternoon, and he spent the night on the trail until a hiker found him Saturday morning. No one had any idea that he had gone fishing or even where to start looking for him. Fortunately, he survived the encounter and hopefully learned from the experience, but that could easily have been me. Oh. Man, isn't that, that is so true? I do think, at the very least, you do have to let people know you're going fly fishing. You know, you really do. And sometimes it's, it's the places that you say, ah, this is only, it's only going to be a half-mile hike. You know, this, is a, this won't be any big deal. But, boy, things can happen then. So I, first of all, you and I have talked about this. We rarely fish uh, alone. But when we do, uh, we always let somebody know where we are. I, I, I learned that, too, bow hunting. In fact, I... As a guy who was a really good bow hunter, he, uh, you know, and he would camp, uh, you know, up in the mountains, and, and every day he would uh, leave a note in his tent as to where he was going to hunt. Of course, we always joked we were going to go find his tent, and because he knew where the elk were, we were going to find out where he went hunting. But uh, that's a great uh, practice, so that uh, uh, yeah, you're making sure that you're you're going to be safe. Well, that's going to do it for today. What's the biggest fly fishing lie you've ever heard that you've had to ignore? Please go to twoguysintheriver.com and comment on this podcast link. What fly fishing lies have you heard which need to be corrected? You can find Two Guys in a River pretty much everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher. And you can visit our website, twoguysintheriver.com. We publish a new episode and a new article each week. And of course, we would love for you to purchase our new book on Amazon.com. It's called The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists, Life is Short, Catch More Fish. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River, and that's no lie. <laughs> for the love of fly fishing. It's corny. What can we say? I know.